Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.23 a.m. Central Standard Time, and it's the very last day of the very first month of this year of our Lord, 2022. This is episode 536 of Bitcoin, and let's begin with some words from Hans Hermann Hopp, a senior fellow of the Ludwig von Mises Institute and the founder and current president of the Property and Freedom Society, shall we? And I think it is, it is very important in, in these replies to people like Krugman that we don't get involved in technical details, but ask them questions almost like a child. Explain to me how an increase in paper pieces can possibly make a society richer. Uh, if that were the case, explain to me why is there still poverty in the world? Isn't every central bank in the world capable of printing as much paper as they want? And do you then think the society, the world as a whole would be richer? I'm sure the guy cannot answer this type of question. Nobody can answer this type of question. Um, but again, we get far too much bogged down in answering technical details of his argument instead of always repeating this question. Please explain to me how a piece of paper can make society richer. Well, Hans, they do that because it's called fiat. They just decree it. They just, they're just going to print the money and tell you that you're richer. And even though that all evidence points to the contrary, you know, screw you, Hans. Screw you, dude. Because, you know, they're just going to print paper, and paper is money, and therefore wealth. Hans has the point. Hans wins the internet for the day, honestly, in my opinion, because it is. It's like, how you know, honestly, that's a good question. If it is the case that you can just print money and make people wealthy, then why, are, why isn't everybody wealthy? Because it doesn't work that way. It's never going to work that way. It never has worked that way. Debasement of the currency is one of the middle steps to the collapse of an empire. We've seen it several times before. All you have to do is go to a history class. Hell, you don't even have to go to a history class. $4 in late fees and a fucking library card in the history section of that library, you can learn anything that you want. If you know how to read, then you have access to the world's knowledge. That's why reading is so important. And that's why I pretty much, you know, hammer that shit into my kids, like, all the time. It's like, <laughs> you'd hear me all the time that something, like, my son or my daughter will point to something and say, well, uh, you know, is, is this, is, if I, if we let them get, like, a $5 toy and they point to something and they're like, I want that, and I'll, like, point to the price tag and I'm like, this is why we learn how to read, because this number is way higher than $5, 
and yes, I'm 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 kind of an asshole when it comes to being a dad that way, but it's really important. Why? Because once you learn how to read, everything becomes available. Every, you understand language. Language is what makes reality. It, it it language is the reality engine that we have. If you don't know how to understand the spoken word, be able to read the written word, and be able to fucking add well, then you're kind of hopeless, but that is not anybody here. But if you do have kids, drive it into them, learn how to read, you know, and somehow or another, make them love it. I don't care if you've got to buy them graphic novels. That's, I mean, that's what we do with my daughter. She loves them. My, my son, he loves them too. And guess what? He will read one in an hour. I mean, he'll burn through it. I don't care how it is that people learn how to read. I'm not going to shove a history book in, in front of my son's face. I don't have a problem shoving a graphic novel, novel in front of my son's face. Why? Because he's going to learn how to read. But we can read this. The unhosted crypto wallet rule is back. That's right. Unhosted crypto wallet rule. The rule was first proposed by U.S. money laundering watchdog, the FinCEN, in late 2020 and apparently it's been resurrected so we got to deal with this shit again nicholas day is going to tell us about it from coindesk a controversial proposed rule that would enforce know your customer rules on unhosted or self-hosted crypto wallets may again be under consideration by the u.s federal government yeah good luck with all of that bitches the rule was first proposed at the end of 2020 by the FinCEN, the U.S. money laundering watchdog, if enacted, crypto exchanges would be required to collect names and home addresses, among other personal details, from anyone hoping to transfer cryptocurrencies to their own private wallets. <clears throat> Industry advocates said they were concerned that the rules might be impossible for certain wallets to comply with because they're not controlled by people and therefore are not tied to this personal information. Others were also concerned that the requirement might be overly burdensome for individuals to comply with. The rule was driven by then-Treasury Secretary Stephen Munchenbutz rather than FinCEN itself. The original proposal was published on the Treasury's website and not FinCEN's. The watchdog only posted the proposed rule when the comment period was extended. The Treasury Department, which is <clears throat> now overseen by Secretary Janet the Felon Yellen revealed that the rule might be considered in this semi-annual agenda of regulations set to be formally published in the Federal Register on January the 31st. That would be today. The agenda outlines priorities for the Treasury Department, but it does not indicate that the rules will for sure be implemented or that they will be implemented as is. Rather, the agenda is a tool that signals things Treasury will work on over the next six months. Quote, FinCEN is proposing to amend the regulations implementing the Bank Secrecy Act to require banks and money service businesses to submit reports, keep records, and verify the identity of customers in relation to transactions involving convertible virtual currencies or digital assets with legal tender status held in unhosted wallets or held in wallets hosted in a jurisdiction identified by FinCEN, the document said. The timetable in the section 
suggests that FinCEN aims to finalize the rule by the end of August if they choose to finalize it at all. The proposed rule originally had an unusually short 15-day comment period, further stirring controversy among industry advocates. Typically, comment periods are between 30 and 90 days, though some rules may have a 120-day comment period. In public notices, FinCEN twice extended the comment period, first for another 15 days and later for a further 60 days. In that first extension, FinCEN treated the rules provisions as two separate issues. One of these provisions sought to impose currency transaction report rules on crypto transactions to unhosted wallets. Financial institutions currently file CTRs for customers who transact with over $10,000 in a single day. Shit, you can't even buy a fucking car with that at this point. <clears throat> the personal data rule, referred to as the counterparty data collection rule, would apply to customers transferring over $3,000 in crypto per day to private wallets. That's, you know, this is all we need to know about what's going on. They're, they're considering it again. Uh, this is something that if you're not used to it, because I don't know, you haven't been woken up. I mean, I used to be asleep myself and was thinking everything was just all hunky-dory until I found out otherwise. The fact of the matter is, is that bad rules are going to continuously be shoved down our throat no matter how many times that bad rule is dropped out of Congress or the Treasury Department or FinCEN or the Fed. It, it doesn't matter. They're just going to keep trying again. And if this one fails, they'll try again. And if that one fails, they'll try again. And all they have to do is continue to try until they finally get it through. We have a rule in the court system called double jeopardy. You cannot be tried twice for the same crime. My question is, how do we get the United States Congress and the rest of government, not that it's ever going to happen, to actually abide by the same stricture? In other words, if nobody wanted it the first time, you're not allowed to put it up for consideration a second time. It's one and done. If you don't do that, then like the poor idiot that gets tried twice for a conviction, and if that conviction gets, you know, or if that not, if they don't get convicted on the second trial, then they'll try a third trial and a fourth trial, and a fifth, and a sixth. And they'll just continue doing it until that poor dumb son of a bitch is chilling out over in Sing Sing. This is just part of the reality that we're going to have to fight against. But you can't fight against what it is that you don't know. But this is what's going on. And they do this shit all the time. They've been doing it for decades. We've just been asleep at the wheel for most of, the, most of that time. Now, Bitcoin and the smallest businesses the Cantillon effects and why they need Bitcoin. Heidi Porter, Mark Maria, and Colin Crossman all thrown in together to write this for Bitcoin Magazine. The Cantillon effect describes the phenomena that those closest to the money printer benefit the most. Larger institutions, banks, organizations, and corporations are closer to the money. Larger groups representing large amounts of coordinated interest are also closer to the money. What are small and medium enterprises? Small businesses are usually defined as organizations with fewer than 100 employees. Mid-size enterprises are those organizations with 100 to 999 employees. 
According to the Small Business Administration, SMEs employ 41.1% of all private sector employees. There is another level of business that is defined by certain states or organizations. A micro enterprise employs 10 or fewer people and grosses less than $250,000 annually and in some cases to a maximum of $500,000 annually in other cases. That is most businesses. These businesses are a vital part of your downtown and local community. These businesses include the local pub, our local retail store, your local restaurant, a car service shop, home product shop, florist, flooring, or lighting store. However, whether it's a number of employees or its annual revenue, what makes or breaks a business is the difference between income and expenses. Too much red ink and the business dies. The goal is to have more income than expenses. The largest part of expenses tends to be capital equipment, inventory costs, and wages. Numerous people have written about how inflation has a larger and more deleterious effect on those at the lower wage levels. We've seen this clearly over the last 20 months. Inflation will also have the largest effect on smaller businesses. What's needed is something that counters the effect of inflation. These smallest smallest businesses need Bitcoin the most. Some of the reasons inflation affect the small business most? Well, one, economy of scale. Larger businesses often benefit from economies of scale. If you buy more, you get discounts. The smallest businesses, they don't have that benefit. This means that the smallest businesses are hit hardest by inflation and must either increase their prices or possibly lose money as a result. Increasing prices to offset higher costs can also lead to lost business, often to larger businesses, and thus lead to losses. Number two is wages. With inflation, businesses must raise wages. Because the smallest businesses have issues with scale and cost, it's more difficult to raise wages. Big companies are able to offer higher wages and pass that increase to a much wider customer base. This can then harm the ability to attract workers and thus hurt the ability to be productive and provide services to those customers. There has been and continues to be a war for talent. Susceptibility to downturns is number three. Small and businesses, medium businesses can be more susceptible to economic downturns. A recent Brookings report states that SMEs were responsible for over 60% of job losses during the 2008 recession. Furthermore, the same or worse is expected due to the effects of COVID-19. Job loss can be seen as a proxy for lost sales where the business cannot support their previous employment levels. Number four, the inability to manage technology changes <clears throat> or supply chain disruptions. Speaking of disruptions, pardon the cough. In a lockdown of an economy, who is going to have the technology to move online quickly? It's most likely the larger half of the SMEs or large businesses who have the resources and scalability to implement online software. In a supply chain disruption, who do you think gets the last or late shipment? It's the smaller and the smallest of the purchasers. The smallest businesses were even last in line for the COVID-19 relief loans granted to temporarily mitigate the economic slowdown for many businesses. Number five, risk of failure. There are many different reasons for small business failures. Per a New York Fed paper, loss of business is certainly a large contributor and you can't do business without being able to receive mandatory supplies for your business. 
If we can read the tea leaves of past crises and the effect of the smallest of the SME businesses, according to a report from the St. Louis Fed, quote, in the Great Recession, very small establishments exited at a rate nearly twice as high as the economy on average. They also saw a much larger decline in sales if they did survive. But even very small establishments with relatively more sales did not have a lower exit rate, end quote. The numbers from the last great crisis do not bode well for the smallest establishment amidst the COVID-19 crisis. The smallest businesses are part of the individualistic and sovereign heart of any community, and we've seen far too many go under in this pandemic. And, as mentioned above, with so many Americans employed by these types of businesses, it is imperative that they remain viable for the security of our economy and the vitality of our communities. Could Bitcoin as an inflation hedge via the appreciating value of Bitcoin help other smaller businesses survive and new ones to start and grow? Well, yes, we believe so. Okay, so that's, I mean, that seems like common sense, but I like that they just kind of laid it out into, you know, five separate pieces of what it is that business, small businesses have to go through and that they don't get the relief effort from all the money printing that uh, Hans Hermann Hope uh, told us about at the beginning of the show. That would be economies of scale, wages, susceptibility to downturns, inability to manage technology and supply chain crap and risk of failure in general. Yeah, yeah, no shit, dude, no shit. But still, again, it's good to just kind of lay out a good five points of what it is that your small business is up against in the world of just unbridled money printing, governments around the world lying to their citizenry about what's dangerous and what's not, and all the rest of the garbage that once you woke once you've woken up, you cannot unsee any of this shit. I got the prime minister of fucking Canada ran away like a little bitch. And supposedly people say that they've spotted him on some island or, or such trefoil or some shit like that. I, I don't even know. And But what is clear is that he is not in, he's not where he's supposed to be. The prime minister, the head dude, right? The blackface wearing racist son of a bitch, Justin Trudeau, packed up and ran away with his little tail between his legs. And somehow or another, people are still going to tell me to trust the government. Why would I trust a coward? I mean, I'm not Canadian. I get it. But dude, if I was Canadian, I would have to be asking the question, why would I trust this coward? I mean, it's not like I'm not even going to defend Bush and Cheney here for the whole 9-11 crap. But at least there was at least there was a plausible explanation. People, you know, fly quote unquote, flying planes into the, into the world trade centers. It doesn't matter if it happened or not. I, it doesn't matter what tinfoil hat David says to you at this point, something took those buildings down. The planes clearly flew into them as to the reasons why I don't, I'm not convinced at all of the actual national story that we've been fed, but be that as it may, at least massive buildings were falling down in New York City and the Pentagon somehow or another got some kind of explosive device sent to it. We're not really quite sure about that shit at all. 
So at least when they went into hiding, <clears throat> there was something really weird going on. A bunch of truckers show up in Ottawa and the prime minister bails. Are you, are you kidding me? Dude. Oh my God. So small businesses are just, they're, they're on the ropes and we need them. We need all of them. They employ damn near 50% of your population. It's amazing just how much we've forgotten about how the world actually works. So, uh, Binance on deck. Let's see what's going on here. Binance restricts over 200 Nigerian accounts amid money laundering requirements. Oh boy, Scott Cipollina, Bitcoin hater from Decrypt.co is going to tell us about it. Crypto exchange Binance has restricted a total of 281 personal accounts belonging to Nigerians per Reuters. Binance CEO CZ reportedly told these customers in a letter that the decision was made to ensure user safety, but also at the request of international law enforcement authorities. International law enforcement authorities is not the government of Nigeria. Somebody extant to Nigeria uh, told them to do this, apparently. Quote, currently, we have resolved 79 cases and continue to work through others. All non-law enforcement related cases will be resolved within two weeks, CZ reportedly said. The news comes amid an array of serious regulatory woes for the crypto exchange. Earlier this month, Binance's regulatory shortcomings came to a head. According to a Reuters investigation, CZ ignored warnings about the exchange's weak know-your-customer checks, which are designed to be the first line of defense against money laundering and other illicit activities. So that's all we're going to need from, from that one. We've got an external source telling Binance not to service 200 and what was it, 81 personal accounts of Nigerians. Okay. Um, joy. That's, that always makes me feel really, really good, right? Um, no, no, it, it actually doesn't. If this had come from the Nigerian government, that's one thing. Doesn't make it good. It's just that now you got people that the Nigerian people don't even know their names. They don't know where they are, are telling, uh, they're, they're telling Binance to shut down Nigerians. You know, it's just, just going to go on and on and on and on and on and on. Bitcoin mining <clears throat> could be heating homes in North Vancouver next year. Huh, nice. <laughs> Under a recent, oh, by the way, this is, who who's writing this one? Sarah Gutjawaski from Vancouver Sun. Under a recent announcement, an agreement of terms to that effect was reached between Mint Green, a Canadian tech company, and Lonsdale Energy Corporation. The city-owned corporation currently heats 100 buildings containing 7,000 apartments in central and lower Lonsdale area using a mixture of clean energy alternatives, including natural gas boilers and solar panels. Next year, computers working around the clock to create cryptocurrency could be added to that list. Each of Mint Green servers can crank out 0.47 megawatts per hour, enough to heat 350,000 square feet of space for a day, said Colin Sullivan, CEO of Mint Green. Quote, our Bitcoin mining servers are situated in a vessel filled with a non-conductive coolant. A pump moves the coolant over the servers, which in turn conducts to a mechanical device called a heat exchanger, imparting heat directly to LEC's district energy system. The process 
conducted by Mint Green Digital Boilers, would save 20,000 tons of carbon emissions from entering the atmosphere over the expected 12-year term when compared to natural gas boilers, which Sullivan said emitted a significant amount of greenhouse gases. Each digital boiler is said to recover more than 96% of the electricity used for Bitcoin mining in the form of heat energy, Sullivan said. If contracted, North Vancouver is to provide a municipally owned space for hundreds of mint green Bitcoin servers in the first large-scale deployment of the company's technology, said Karsten Vang, CEO of Lonsdale Energy. Quote, we're not investing in Bitcoin, we're just buying the heat said Vang, unwilling to disclose costs associated with the deal. <laughs> Similar initiatives have been undertaken in Europe. If a contract is signed in North Vancouver, the city will be the first on the continent to utilize cryptocurrency operations for heating. Quote, Bitcoin mining is typically a hugely harmful environmental activity because of the electricity needed to run the servers comes from fossil fuels like coal in countries such as China. I guess they haven't read the news. Oh, well. Uh, said Werner Antweiler, a University of British Columbia environmental economics professor. Oh, God. Environmental economics. That should scare the piss out of you right there. Just saying. However, in British Columbia, it makes good sense, <clears throat> said Antweiler. Quote, here, clean hydroelectricity powers most of the province, causing no secondary emissions. Although the idea, the idea is novel, another expert says the mechanics of it could prove tricky. Joshua Binkerhoff, who teaches engineering at UBC, said that there could be technical challenges with using Bitcoin to provide homes with heat because of the 365-day load emitted from the servers. Quote, knowing that people's needs for heat increases and decreases during the day, there would be a need to store the excess heat emitted when not sent to homes, Brinkerhoff said. Otherwise, that energy efficiency would be lost and heat would be wasted. Thermal energy storage have their own inefficiencies, the engineer added. It's likely Mint Green won't be able to store that excess heat for long periods of time. For instance, in summer, when less energy is needed to heat buildings in North Vancouver. Antweiler said that the project will only be as valuable as Bitcoin, which remains a speculative asset. If the monetary trading value of Bitcoin ceases to be, so will Mint Green's computer servers, which run high-level calculations in order to produce the cryptocurrency, a.k.a. mining. <clears throat> in 2019, the North Vancouver City Council passed a motion to increase its greenhouse gas reduction targets to net zero by 2050 and for a decade earlier cut those emissions by 80% from 20, uh, 2007 levels. Vang said that the company's proposed work with Mint Green could get the city closer to that goal. Quote, we as a company are looking into other renewable energy sources, including heat recovery from the ocean and sewage plants, any product that can produce excess heat, we're interested. All right, so here's, the here's an interesting fact about uh, excess heat. There's a guy on a podcast that I listen to. He's not the host. He's, he's essentially comes on as a guest every once in a while, but is also mainly there to answer questions about solar energy. And amazingly enough, he knows, he, for, for what I'm about to say, that's why it's amazing, but a little background on the guy. This is the dude that you ask question to, questions to if you have a question about uh, batteries, like charging, what kind of battery, what kind of battery do you need to do X, Y, and Z, charging batteries, discharging batteries, and anything solar. Hookup, I mean, the guy knows his shit about solar, and you know what he says about solar? 
To use solar to produce electricity is one of the worst uses of solar elect or solar energy on the face of the planet. What you really want is to harvest the heat. And if you do it right with different mechanisms, that heat will actually pay you a lot more dividends in collection than the actual electricity produced from a solar panel. And this is coming from a guy who uses solar panels. And even he's like, the solar energy that you're collecting in the form of electricity is so far lower than the amount of heat that you could collect, which does so much more. It's counterintuitive. But look at a Sterling engine. And I've got a, uh, for today's uh, artwork for the podcast, I have a representation of a Sterling engine or Streeling engine. I can't really, I don't really know how to pronounce it. I think it's Sterling. These things drive a, a cam that, or not a cam, it drives a piston that then drives a, um, a rotor. And that rotor has enough torque to spin a generator if you have enough heat. And the thing about it is, is that if we put a lot of money into the development of the Stirling engine, it's possible that that heat energy can go directly into just generating more electricity much more efficiently and a hell of a lot more in, well, I guess for lack of a better term, in volume than an actual solar panel can. There's a couple of units that I was looking at that use, that are, are burn chambers for just burning large amounts of wood down to ash, and they hang a couple of vents on top of that, and that heat is captured, most of it is captured, and used to drive electrical engines, and it does it in a way, or electrical generators, and it does it in a way that is very much akin to the Stirling, the principles of the Stirling engine. And they produce, we're talking like, like hundreds of kilowatts to megawatts of capacity in electrical generation on heat. We're not looking in the right place. We need to be looking in the right place. Now, DM is dead. Long live Bitcoin. DM is dead, but Facebook isn't done with crypto. Daniel Roberts for Decrypt.co. Facebook announced its grand crypto plan on June the 18th, 2019. A borderless global currency called Libra, backed by a collection of low volatility assets like bank deposits and government securities and currencies from stable and reputable central banks. In other words, a stable coin. On the same day, Facebook announced a crypto wallet called Colibra to hold your Libra coin. Two years and seven months later, Facebook is called Meta, Libra is called Diem, and Diem is reportedly selling off all its assets, although it's unclear what those assets actually are. It is an ignominious, I'm not even going to try. Laugh at me. Point and laugh. Go ahead, do it now. Anyway, it's an ignominious end to a project that everyone in crypto knew was doomed from the start. The only crypto product Facebook actually shipped was the Novi wallet, formerly Calibra, but it can only store the Paxos stablecoin USDP since Diem never launched. So what did Facebook do wrong? Well, for starters, it's Facebook. No, I mean, for starters, it's stablecoin was never really decentralized. Despite Facebook's interesting Libra or insisting Libra was overseen by the Libra Association, a consortium of members based in Switzerland, 
Four months after announcing Libra, the Libra Association lost eight founding members, including MasterCard, PayPal, eBay, and Stripe. They saw the writing on the wall. The stink was too strong. It was also hard for Facebook to argue Libra wasn't just a Facebook thing <clears throat> when it put its own executive in charge of it, David Marcus, formerly the head of Facebook Messenger. Yeah, he ditched the company in November. But Libra's whiff of centralization wouldn't on its own have spelled doom for the project. After all, critics point out that the three leading stablecoins are all centralized as well. No, the problem for Libra from day one was Facebook's brand. Facebook's stablecoin announcement was a watershed moment, Coin Center Executive Director, Director Jerry Brito told Jeff Roberts for his must-read feature this week on the Biden administration's plan to clamp down on stablecoins. It alerted Congress to stablecoins, which the government sees as a threat to its monetary authority. It also came on the heels of Cambridge Analytica and other scandals about Facebook's political influence and failures to keep misinformation off of its platform. Despite all that, there was one fact that suggested Libra could still succeed. Two billion users. That base makes it hard for any Facebook product to completely fail. If Libra could just get out of the starting gates, some large amount of people was likely to at least try it. But the political hurdle was too high. It's tempting now to declare this is the end of Facebook's crypto ambitions, but that's not right. It has gone all in on the metaverse, and the metaverse is widely seen these days as a crypto thing, even though that isn't quite accurate. The concept of the metaverse dates back to the early 90s with Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash. By the way, if you haven't read Neil Stephenson's Snow Crash, dude, you're missing out. Thing is freaking awesome. And metaverse games like Second Life and Animal Crossing were pre-crypto, but the rise of metaverse games that use blockchain and NFTs has blurred the lines. Facebook was so desperate to show that it's all in on the metaverse that it changed its name to Meta. The stock is down 5% since the rebrand and has also renamed Oculus to MetaQuest, prompting widespread jeers, including from VCs like Chris Dixon, whose firm was built on money made from Mark Andreessen's early Facebook investment. And according to a, a report from the FT, or Financial Times, Meta is now experimenting with an NFT marketplace on Instagram. So Meta's stablecoin is dead, and now it's fall to other issuers like Circle and Paxos to navigate the government's hostility towards stablecoins. But don't expect Meta to give up on crypto just yet. <laughs> yeah. Um, that seems clear because it seems that there was a uh, Brazilian cop, not copyright, um, patent that had the word Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, and it was done by Facebook. So we're, we're not sure what the hell that actually means. I haven't seen any write-ups about it yet other than just a few tweets. So I'm going to wait until somebody figures that one out. But in between, let's run the numbers. CNBC futures and commodities shows West Texas intermediate oil down scant 0.07% to $86.84. Brent North Seed faring better, up almost a full point, $90.92. 
And natural gas was kicking ass earlier today. It was up like like six, seven percent. It has whittled those gains off by 3.58%. It's down to $4.80 per thousand cubic feet. Gasoline up almost a half point, $2.55 a gallon. Shiny Metal Rocks having a good day with gold not leading the way, but is up there by half a point. Still under $1,800 to $1,797. Silver up 0.71%, $22.50. Platinum is up one point to $1,017. Copper down a quarter. Palladium is up 1.36%. Ag is mixed. Wheat is down, leading the way 1.05%. Soybeans are up 0.68%. Corn is down three quarters. Sugar is down up, uh, uh, down almost a point. Coffee down, or it actually, no, it just flipped positive, 0.13. Cotton having a good day, 2% to the upside. Rough rice is down three quarters of a point. And chocolate pretty much just stable. Uh, we're looking at indices. The Dow futures is down 0.18. S&P futures up a quarter, NASDAQ futures up over a point, and the S&P mini going to have a rocking day, at least at the start, 2% to the upside. Real money has Bitcoin at $37,000 or $37,407. Uh, 224,000 transactions performed in the last 24 hours is 9,366 transactions per hour. And a mere 666,000 BTC, number of the beast, has been traded in that 24 hours. 27,758 BTC being sent on average every hour with 2.96 BTC as the average transaction value. 0.013 BTC as the median transaction value or $475. That's dropped quite a bit, by the way. And block times are quite a bit higher zero or sorry i guess i should say it 11 minutes 10 seconds <laughs> fees on a per block basis 0.095 btc and 12.3 btc taken in fees overall in the last 24 hour period uh 3.9 dip in hash rate brings us to 192.2 exahashes per second your shitcoin indicator doge is at 13.9 united states pennies Wow, big mempool today for Clark Moody. 12,262 transactions are waiting on 15 blocks to clear. We have 713.7 billion in market cap, which has now broken the 6% level of gold's market cap to 6.03. And if you so choose, you may purchase 20.9 ounces of shiny metal rocks that just lay there with your one Bitcoin, of which there are. 18,944,885.25 of 3,385.5 of those are locked up in the Lightning Network with a total value of $127.5 million running over damn near 20,000 nodes, guys. We're about to break that. 19,867 nodes that we can see. 85,241 payment channels and 76.4% of all of it is run over Tor. That's 2,586.89 BTC being handled by 11,447 Tor nodes that we can see. And that's going to do it for Vitals.
Welcome to part two of the news that you can use. Dylan LeClaire and Sam Rule going to start us out of the gates with Bitcoin's derivative market bulls have vanished. Bitcoin magazine. Uh-oh, I guess we're all in trouble again. The Bitcoin perpetual swap, the most liquid and traded futures investment, is a contract that allows traders to speculate on the Bitcoin price with leverage. While there is always an equal amount of longs and shorts, the positioning of those contracts relative to the spot Bitcoin price shows the bullish slash bearish bias in the derivatives market. When the contract price of a perpetual futures contract is above the spot market Bitcoin price, the perpetual futures funding rate will be positive, meaning longs pay shorts a percentage of their notional position size. The opposite is also true. Typically, a bullish bias is present in futures markets. Throughout much of 2021, perpetual futures contracts were persistently leading spot markets by a wide margin, indicating a strong bullish bias from speculators. Recently, funding has flipped negative, showing that perpetual futures are trading below spot, and this isn't a result of cascading liquidations driving price, but rather a flip in sentiment and market expectation. Over the last 24 hours, Perpetual futures funding has been negative 8.23% on an annualized basis, meaning that shorts are paying longs 8.23% annualized on their notional position size. While it is certainly possible that increasing downside is to come due to an increasingly uncertain macroeconomic outlook look and Fed's hawkishness, it is a good sign for Bitcoin bulls to see negative funding persist. Below is this, or and then they show a couple of a couple of charts, which I'm not going to describe. It's it's in the verbiage, okay? It really is. Um, <clears throat> what to watch out for over the coming weeks is increasing negative funding rates, coupled with rising open interest, similar to what was witnessed over the summer of 2021. Now I'm not going to pretend that I understand exactly what the hell Dylan Leclaire is saying. What I am happy for is that this seems to this seems to kind of signal that people are are maybe they're maybe they're learning their lessons at least in the short term to not fuck around with futures just in general longs shorts whatever right maybe maybe because we've seen so many we've seen so many cascade liquidations over the first month of this year that it's just actually in the last and the last month of last year you know so december of last year january of this year these last two months have just been incredibly brutal and what is it that i always tell you don't trade this shit you're going to lose there i, I guarantee you there like out of 10 professional futures traders that know everything that there is to know about leveraging long or short and what the market's going to do and how to read charts and do all the TA shit. I guarantee you that eight of them lost their ass and two of them got their money. Just saying, these guys are pros. And unless you want to sit up every, for 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days, because that's the Bitcoin market, then, you know, be my guest but you're probably gonna lose your ass. Now, speaking of losing their ass, Martin Young tells us uh, about Wonderland's co-founder throwing in the towel on the beleaguered DeFi project. I'm telling you, stay out of DeFi, Cointelegraph. The co-founder 
of the embattled Wonderland decentralized finance project is preparing to pull the plug. Sounds like rug. Following a deeply divided community vote. On Sunday, Wonderland co-founder Danielle Sestigali tweeted that the avalanche-based reserve currency experiment is coming to an end. He added that the divided community means that we have failed. The vote to save or wind down the project came after Sestigali had asked former partner and Wonderland Treasury head Michael Patron, who goes by the pseudonym Oxifu, to step down late last week. Patron, who has changed his name on a number of occasions, was sensationally revealed on Thursday to be a co-founder of the now-defunct Canadian crypto exchange Quadriga CX. He has also been previously convicted of credit card fraud and pleaded guilty to several related offenses in the early 2000s. There were several active votes on the Wonderland Governance Forum. However, the vote to wind down the project and return the treasury back to its holders had 55% voting to save it and 45% in favor of disbanding at the time of writing. Sestigali said that the division has resulted in a single path forward. Quote, the duty of the team is to enact the will of the token holders. As the vote is so close to 50-50, there is only one path forward. It is to be reimbursed, and we're going to unwind the whole son of a bitch. Uh, he actually just says reimburse slash unwind, but I like mine better. He added that he is working with the team on a new proposal. However, it was pointed out by those in favor of keeping the project going that the community was not split. They suggested that the token allocation was split, which raised other concerns among the community. And let's see, here is a, a response to the Wonderland experience coming to an end tweet from Danielle. Um, this one is from Ox Von Bismarck. He says, I am ready to listen to what you have in mind, so please do not take this as FUD or hate. I just want to correct a point here. The community is not split 50-50. The token allocation is. The community, as individuals, voted overwhelmingly no, and against all odds, we eked out a win. A number of alternative proposals have been put forward to save the project from going under. These include another ongoing discussion on the potential merger with Wonderland and Abracadabra, a DeFi lending protocol and yield strategy generator, otherwise known as SCAM. Additionally, on Monday, a lengthy proposal for Wonderland 2.0 was published by members of the community known as Frogs, suggesting a transition of the existing protocol and treasury to a new decentralized autonomous organizational structure with a more transparent governance system. They won't quit. The DeFi imbroglio has had ripple effects throughout the ecosystem with other networks such as Terra also feeling the impacts. The close ties between Wonderland and Abracadabra's magic internet money token have also impacted Terra's ecosystem since MIM, magic internet money token, is used for yield farming with the Terra stablecoin TerraUSD. The stablecoin has dipped below its peg recently on Wonderland concerns, and this has had knock-on effects on Terra's Luna, which is used for its price stabilization mechanism. Luna prices are currently down 13% over the past 24 hours as investors have been liquidating. Meanwhile, Wonderland's native time token has crashed nearly 60% since the debacle began last week and is now languishing 96% down from its November 7th all-time high of just over $10,000 per token. Jesus Christ. 
it I'm telling you, it just goes on and on and on. And this is <clears throat> this is just endemic to the DeFi community. Why? Because the entire community is only concerned with one thing, making as much money as they can, as fast as they possibly can, with the most disregard for ethics and morality that you can possibly have. That's the DeFi community. And if you're part of the DeFi community and you're yelling at me right now, fuck you too. You're a cheap whore. I'm sorry, but that's the way it is. You're a cheap whore. If you're in DeFi for yield, you know, getting token yields off a of pineapple coin to switch for fucking fish coin, fuck you and everything about you and the horse you rode in on and your parents for sleeping together and having you in the first damn place. Everything about your DeFi project is a scam. Everything about the community is just a bunch of scammers trying to scam each other. Of course, there's going to be a 50-50 split. You know who voted to unwind this shit? The people that lost their goddamn money. You know who voted for it? The people that made the money. It's just wealth exchange. <clears throat> That's all this is. Not like it's any different in traditional legacy markets. I'm just saying, stop with the DeFi stuff. I know you're not going to. That's okay. But if you are interested in actual sovereignty and freedom and the ability to hold something that has at least a hope in hell of battling inflation and standing for the long term, being protected by the most individuals with the largest brain trust I've ever seen, you're only going to walk down one road and it's Bitcoin. Screw Ethereum, screw DeFi, screw all the rest of this shit. You hold Dogecoin, get rid of it. Get rid of it today. Just say, fuck it. I mean, hell, I think today I'm going to actually be liquidating my 401k because I have no idea if my 401k is going to be available to me by the end of the week, the way the legacy financial markets are going. You think I'm going to get into DeFi? Are you freaking crazy? Now, speaking of no ethics and no morality, former BOJ official warns against the use of the digital yen in the financial sector. I can't imagine why he would be saying such a thing. Prashant Jha, please inform us from Cointelegraph. According to a report published in the Japan Times, Hiromiya Yakamaka, oh wait, Yamaoka, Yamaoka, the former head of the BOJ's financial settlement department, advised against using the digital yen as a part of the country's monetary policy. Yamaoka's biggest concern lies with the negative interest rates and believes once the digital yen becomes a prominent tool for mass payments, the common public would have to bear the brunt of the depleting value of the fiat currency. He went on to warn that the digital yen could pose a risk to financial stability and could have disastrous effects uh, on, the out on the outcome of the economy. Yamaoka is currently working in the private sector. I wonder on what? Oh, he's chairing a forum of 74 firms that include some of the biggest banks in the country. And the forum is, which says here is currently working on launching a private digital currency as early as April of this year. Yeah. What he said, what Yamaoka said is true. Negative interest rates, 
digital yen becoming a prominent tool for mass payments and bear the brunt of depleting value. All that's true. And he's using the truth to sell his own shit coin. That's what he's doing. That's why it's unethical. That's why it's immoral. You should be standing up against the digital yen and telling people to get into Bitcoin, not producing your own private shit coin. In October of 2020, the BOJ shared a three-phase trial outline for its central bank digital shitcoin. The first two phases of the trial are focused on testing the proofs of concept while the third would see a pilot. The first phase started in April 2021 and is expected to finish by March of this year. The BOJ is expected to start the second phase of the trials later this year that would test the technical aspects around the issuance of the digital yen. Despite being one of the first nations to introduce crypto regulations, cash is still a king in the Japanese retail sector or owing to natural calamities, which often cut off power in the country. Thus, the payment sector in the country is more focused on executing offline transactions. In July 2020, the central bank published a research report focusing on developing an offline CBDC. Bank of Japan Governor, no way I can pronounce the name, said in a statement on Friday that they are not looking for an immediate launch. He also noted that a digital yen could launch by 2026 and the decision won't be made by the central bank alone. So there you go. There's that that article. Now, here's what I will say. I'm going to sing a little bit of praises for the digital shit coins of whatever country, you know, insert country here. Okay, just, I'm just saying. Like the rest of the altcoins, the shit coins, and the DeFi landscape, now we have all these private digital currencies that are basically going to come up with these massive consortiums of banking, and they're going to try to sell their private shit coin over the central bank of that country's shitcoin, and that's going to cause fog of war. I love it because it's a blade of armor to Bitcoin. The more confusion that we can sow in the ranks surrounding that which is Bitcoin, all the altcoins and shitcoins and DeFi and private central currencies by assholes who used to work at central banks like this, the better. Because the regulatory commissions will be chomping at the bit to attack something that they have a hope in hell of actually being able to attack because these people want to keep their jobs. They need wins. They need big wins. And they're going to go after stable coins and altcoins. And they're going to go after private digital shit coins that are in competition with central bank shit coins. And all of that causes a fog of war. And meanwhile, we have extra time to build Bitcoin into the thing that we see it being. Be part of that. If you possibly can, be part of that. Uh, like, well, like the Liquid Network and uh, Blockstream. They've been lizard people since, what, 2010, 2011? Blockstream's been around for a while and has been accused of being lizard people who want to control Bitcoin. And yet we have this one. Bitcoin's Liquid Network gains six new Federation members. They're really not working on, they're working on Bitcoin, but they're basically interested in side chains of Bitcoin and not, they're not, they don't seem to be really interested in Bitcoin itself. And again, I mean, I like the guys over at Blockstream. They they have their hands into everything and they deliver some really good products. I don't know about Liquid Network, but I've heard people rave about their Bitcoin satellite, uh, their satellite stuff. 
in either event, let's get into this one. Nomsios, Bitcoin Magazine, Bitcoin infrastructure company Blockstream said in a statement sent to Bitcoin Magazine that six new members have joined the Liquid Federation, the cohort of financial institutions that underpins the Liquid Bitcoin sidechain. Quote, Federation members contribute to the Liquid Network security, gain voting rights in the board election and membership process, and provide valuable input on the development of new features. Members also benefit from the ability to perform a peg out without a third party, allowing their users to convert between LBTC and BTC seamlessly within the platform, the statement said. BitMatrix, Digital Markets, GMO Coin, Mempool, Spectre, and Zaprite are now part of the 63-member group. Not, not needing to go any further into that, I am kind of excited that Mempool and Spectre have become federated members. I'm a big proponent of using Spectre's wallet. It's the wallet that I've been using. I have it connected to my Bitcoin full node, so I'm completely sovereign at that point. All of my Bitcoin that I have is actually uh, is actually being you know handled by the Spectre wallet on my full node, and that makes me feel much 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 better than when I had it on a ledger because every time I went to update a ledger, I've been through four ledger devices, guys, at a hundred bucks a pop, pretty much every single time, and no more because every time I try to go upgrade the firmware, something fucks up. And then I got to order another one. And I mean, when it fucks up, it, fu it bricks it. It's weird. It's like, it only happens to me. I've asked several people if it happens to them and they're like, dude, what are you, are you like putting a, like a hex on these things when you, when you open the box? It's like, what's your problem? And I don't know. What I do know now is that my hardware wallet that I own now, uh, being a cold card and a couple of, actually I, I use a couple of cold cards uh, scattered around and Spectre has been a, a mind saving uh, lifeline for me. That's what, all I'm going to say. I feel much better. I'm not worried about like, oh my God, if I really need to do something, is my ledger going to crank up or am I going to have to upgrade the firmware? Because nobody <clears throat> but Rodolfo Novak seems to understand the man in the coma dilemma. If I get in a car wreck and I'm in a 20 year coma and I come out of that and all my shit is secured by a freaking ledger hardware wallet and I can remember the pin, but somehow lost my passphrase, seed phrase, which you'd never want to do. Am I going to depend on a firmware update that may or may not occur because it's 20 years hence, right? No, I'm not going to do that shit. Also, Try not to lose your seed phrase. That's actually the most important part of this entire discussion. But we have other shit to fry. Let's see which one. Oh, new Senate bill would make Bitcoin legal tender in Arizona. Caleb Fernandez writing this one for number nine, K-Gun Tucson. Senator Wendy Rogers, a Republican, has introduced a new Senate bill which would make Bitcoin a legal tender across the Grand Canyon state. SB 1127, state agencies, payments, cryptocurrency could allow state agencies to accept cryptocurrency as a payment method of fines, civil and other penalties, rent, rates, taxes, fees, charges, revenue, financial obligations, and special assignments due to the state. The bill defines cryptocurrencies as, one, cryptocurrency means any form of digital currency in which 
encryption techniques are used to regulate the generation of units of currency and verify the transfer of monies operating independently of a central bank, including Bitcoin, Ethereum, Litecoin, and Bitcoin Cash. Oh my God, I can't believe they put Bitcoin Cash in there. Oh no. Two, cryptocurrency issuer means an issuer of any form of cryptocurrency, including Bitcoin, Shitcoin 1, Shitcoin 2, and Shitcoin 3. If passed, SB 1127 would take effect from and after Saturday, December the 31st. I guess that means of uh, this year. Uh, so we'll just say that. Say that. Um, now, um, Shinobi has some, I, I, I don't have his tweet, but he came firmly out to basically berate everybody that was saying that this was a legal, ten, uh, legal tender bill. And I'm, I'm kind of listening to Shinobi. Uh, he's not an idiot. He knows his shit. And he was saying, this is not a legal tender bill. What this is, is a bill that allows the state agencies to accept Bitcoin as a legal tender, but it's not saying that Arizonans can, should, and are lawfully indebted to transact with each other and private businesses and services with Bitcoin. And reading this bill, I think Shinobi's right. This looks to me that it has nothing to do with being a legal tender insofar as what we understand legal tender to be. This is just the ability to for the state to take Bitcoin in payment for anything that the state actually takes money from its citizenry for. Okay, there's a huge distinction. That's not legal tender. Although the fact that they're doing this is still cool. There's no doubt about it. It's just that there's two things here. One, is that bill going to get passed? I don't know. Maybe. It's got a better shot this year than it did before Bukele made it legal tender in uh, El Salvador. I'll tell you that. But will it? I don't know. There's still, I'm, I give it a 50-50 chance. That's what I'm going to give it. And second, be aware that when all these people are saying, oh my God, Arizona's making it legal tender. It's not legal tender. I don't know why everybody's saying that it's legal tender. Even I fell for it by retweeting the story before I looked at it. And I know my bad, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa, and all that shit. But after reading this, it seems very clear that it is not legal tender, just the ability for you to pay your taxes, which is theft, to the Arizona state government in a form that we now understand as being Bitcoin. Now, UNICEF is calling for child safeguards amid mainstream crypto adoption. And from what I've read so far, it's not what you think. This is kind of interesting. Cointelegraph's Arjit Sarkar is gonna tell us about the United Nations Children Fund, UNICEF, has called for incorporating child safeguards into online child protection initiatives citing financial and exploitative threats posed by unregulated crypto markets. UNICEF's Prospect for Children in 2020 report, which examines the impact of global trends on children, anticipates further mainstream adoption of cryptocurrencies, quote, demonstrating both the promise of greater financial inclusion and the need for new child safeguards. The report shows that digital currencies have gained widespread interest in 87 countries by the end of the year 2021, with the majority of jurisdictions experimenting on their own versions of a central bank digital currency. Yeah, yeah, you and your shit coin. UNICEF expects a similar growth trajectory in 2022, as the report states. Quote, 
a potential alliance between governments, large banks, and investment firms against challenger banks and blockchain-based finance could arise in many countries. The push for crypto's mainstream adoption is also fueled by the economic pressures levied by the COVID-19 pandemic. As UNICEF reported, the economy recovery in high-income countries will will slow slow sorry will slowly see an increase this year despite factoring in future disruptions from the pandemic. UNICEF also expects the collaboration of governments, large banks, and investment firms with crypto and blockchain firms. Quote, these developments will eventually require the emergence of national and international legal and regulatory frameworks. As we wait to see what direction these trends take us in, the implications for children hang in the balance. End quote. With mainstreaming of cryptocurrencies, UNICEF acknowledges the significant benefits bestowed via financial inclusion and frictionless remittances and more instant, transparent, and efficient social assistance programs. However, the United Nations agency warns about the threats posed by unregulated markets to the well-being of children, such as stability of financial systems and deteriorating government revenues. Oh my God, the poor governments. Calling out for new child safeguarding reforms, the report also highlights some of the possible negative impacts of unregulated transactions that support child trafficking, sexual exploitation, the sale and purchase of content depicting child abuse, and defrauding and extortion of children. On an end note, UNICEF suggested, quote, now is the time to begin incorporating cryptocurrency and digital currency child safeguards into online children protection initiatives, end quote. A crypto.com report, remember crypto.com got hacked, uh, just saying, just so you know. Uh, Report predicts that global crypto users could reach 1 billion by the end of 2022. As Cointelegraph reported, the global crypto population increased by 178% in 2021, rising from 106 million in January to 295 million in December. Crypto.com's report estimates that, quote, if we extrapolate, a similar rate of increase in 2022, we are on track to reach 1 billion crypto users by the end of 2022. That's the end of the article. But ladies and gentlemen, that would be one seventh of the world's population being into crypto. And sadly, so many of those people are going to be in DeFi and Dogecoin and going to get raked over the coals. So why did I read this one? Because it presents two, a couple of issues here. One, UNICEF is on deck. And by that, I don't mean that they're going to say rah, rah, Bitcoin. However, the whole thing that they said about, um, let me see if I can find it again. Oh my God, I can't find it. Basically, it was saying that they understand that cryptocurrency, i.e. Bitcoin, can demonstrate financial inclusion. And they they... The the read that I got off that was that, and that's good. And then they go into the child trafficking, child extortion thing. So UNICEF is, if you don't know, is the children's financial, you know, or, uh, sorry, the children's well-being initiative that was launched by the UN, I want to say in the 70s. It's, it may have been earlier than that, but it was at least in place by the 70s. And is basically been not really talked about as of late, but now they're entering the crypto the crypto space insofar as that they're actually talking about it. And they're using the age old argument of child trafficking, child sex shit, sexual trafficking, and all the, the, the stuff that we always hear. So I find it 
interesting that they're holding a dichotomy in their hands where on one hand they say cryptocurrency is good because it includes financial inclusion and that's going to help children in the third world because guess what? There's a lot of third world countries that do not have child labor laws. And if these motherfuckers are going to get paid, it'd be really damn nice if they're going to be if they're going to be enslaved by their you know country anyway as an eight-year-old to go work in a cobalt mine for Elon Musk. It'd be nice if they had their own wallet that they could save those funds in, right? So that's one of the reasons why I'm sure I'm sure that's one of the reasons why UNICEF is talking about the financial inclusion. But then on the other hand. They're using the same bullshit that all the rest of the people use to denigrate and demonize Bitcoin. And I'm not going to say the rest of the cryptocurrencies because they deserve demonization, but Bitcoin does not. Um, so what, you know, at, at the end of this, I'm still thinking, what's the point? I mean, what's the point of UNICEF coming out and holding this dichotomy in their hands of good on one hand, bad on the other? And I don't really know the answer, but I have a gut suspicion that UNICEF is going to be used by the UN to push further on the, this is bad, this is child trafficking, this is child sexual trafficking and all that shit. And they're going to use them as the poster child for why Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies bad later on, even though right now they're holding that Bitcoin is good because it's financial inclusion. And maybe that's to put suckers like me into the vacuum so that I get on UNICEF's side. And then they start rolling out the 100% Bitcoin bad narrative like mid to later this year. I don't know. You tell me. Either way, that's the end of the morning roundup. All right. If you want to support the show and support what I do, please uh, use Podcasting 2.0. There have been, we're going to go ahead and get into this a little bit. Uh, the whole Joe Rogan, uh, Neil Young, and now Joni Mitchell debacle that's going on with Spotify. Joni Mitchell has joined um, uh, Neil Young in pulling her music from uh, Spotify's platform. And it's like, and now apparently this is, is, is the soup du jour of all the people that used to be artists that were well-known and sold millions of copies of their record who are now basically completely forgotten. And this is their only way to become remembered. I mean, dinosaurs need a reason to be in the history books, right? Well, Neil Young started it all by pushing this out into our face. He wants his uh, music gone and they're going to pull it, or I think they've already pulled it from Spotify because he was upset with Joe Rogan for having a person on that knows something about RNA vaccines and another person that was on that knew something about uh, cardiac issues and the vaccine. We won't get into that, but what we will get into is that now it looks like a whole train load of people are getting on board and Joe Rogan today released a video on Instagram, kind of, I don't know, man, I was kind of disappointed with it, honestly. I, I didn't want, I mean, I knew that he wasn't going to tell Spotify to go fuck off and die, but he basically did suck their dick a little bit, and it was a little unpleasant to actually see. But he actually is, is so bad that apparently Joe Rogan himself responded. That's, that's the whole point. Um, my thing is, that I'm thinking that it would be really interesting to see so many people and artists pull their shit from uh, from Spotify 
that Spotify gives Joe Rogan an out on his contract, probably with a whole shit ton of money and damages because of it. But what I'm thinking is that Spotify gets hit hammer, hammered so hard that they go to Joe and say, Joe, we can't have you on our platform anymore. We need to rediscuss the contract. We need you. We want to release you from the contract. It's going to be a no fault divorce and you can go ahead and go and here's your damages and what we've, you know, you got what we paid you already and here's some damages to take care of the other end of it. And then Joe goes and hooks up with Adam Curry for podcasting 2.0 and just sings its praises and promotes and markets the living shit out of it and begins a self goes back to being a sole proprietor of his art of, of all of his work, making his show, producing his show and, and putting his show out there on the airways for us to listen to in podcast format. And if he does it using podcast 2.0 and he gets enough traction that would be the nail in the coffin of all the platforms that would not have Joe Rogan, wouldn't want him on because he talks to like the likes of Dr. Malone and stuff like that. And that's what I would like to see. But after witnessing the video that I saw this morning that he cut, I don't think that that's going to happen. I think he's going to stick with, with Spotify, which is just sad. But if you want to support me and you want to learn what podcasting 2.0 could potentially offer Joe Rogan, please use the breeze wallet. It has a podcast inside of it or a podcaster or a podcatcher, depending on what you want (laughs) or how you want to pronounce it inside the app with a wallet. It allows you to load the wallet up with Bitcoin, AKA Satoshi's and you can stream those Satoshi's to me on a minute per minute basis if you so choose and listen to me live at the exact same time. That way, if you find this podcast valuable and you wanna give me value in return, that's a value for value proposition and Breeze Wallet enables that. So does the Fountain app and so does Sphinx Chat. Okay, so there's, there's good reasons to learn how this works because it's going to go this way. If you're not comfortable at all with that, you can just use my Patreon page, Bitcoin and Podcast. Again, that's Bitcoin and Podcast on Patreon where I will accept dirty fiat, but do not expect me to keep it in that format for very long. I will be punching out every single dollar I get at the end of every single month. It goes straight to strike and I don't even have to get into strike to tell it to convert to Bitcoin because I've got strike set up that any incoming funds that is in US dollars is automatically converted to Bitcoin. So with all that said, I appreciate your support. And now it's time for a little joke. Did you hear about the restaurant called Karma? There's no menu. You get what you deserve. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin and and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.